Welcome listeners to Dark Tides, a weekly improvised audio drama series that uses role-playing game mechanics. And guess what? It's your boy, Chester. Oh, no, always put his finger up at me now. He wants to talk. All right. I, I take we'll let him have his chat it. time. It's all right. All of this is getting cut. Mm-hmm. I'm editing again. Sorry, if I'm preparing myself to sing, don't interrupt. Okay. You oh. don't know this. Now I don't want to do it. <laughs> Content warning is back. Yep, content warning is back. Um, never mind. That was worth it. That was worth it. All right. I don't want. I don't want to talk about this anymore. The content warning is back. The content warning is back because I, warning, I prepared the next couple of episodes, and I basically went, ah, you know, Dead Space is good. Let's do that. <laughs> okay. Um, so this is in my mind, having not yet recorded it. This is going to be more horror uh, than anything we've done so far. So we've had a nice little escapism moment with children and street racing and gang fights. Uh, now into character trauma again. <laughs> That's how we like to relax here on Dark Tides. Anyway, uh, I'm your host, show creator and narrator, Aubrey Lydon. Uh, you can see that we've really mastered the format at mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. point of uh, 16 episodes. Jeez! 16 episodes we're, and we can't get an intro. Still feels like we're only halfway through the series, but we're, we're a bit past that now. That is the dulcet tones of Chester Lydon. Hello. Crisp tones. Crisp tones. I could be like a, a, a men's deodorant. The crisp tones. No. Crisp and woody. Crisp and With woody. With a woody I aroma. Hate, I, there, there's a few things I dislike more than men's deodorant. It's mm. like it's like death on a death on a bar. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, okay. BJ's here too. Say hi, BJ. Hi everyone. My name's BJ. I pray pray. Uh, <laughs> I pray. How's the sun? He's a nineteen year old emo. Uh, and yeah, that's about it. He doesn't have a job or friends. Yep. Who do you play, Chester? Hi guys. My name's Ernest. My, my, no. Oh, you had to. You had to do it. You had I, to one up me, didn't I, you? No. Hello, this everyone. show is a garbage fire. <laughs> Hello everyone, my name is Justin and I play Ernest Marsh, a lifelong Boy Scout and nature enthusiast who has been given a chance to fulfill his lifelong dream of becoming a park ranger. This dream has led him to the Hook Bar Archipelago. Wow, so you do your full intro the one week that I don't. I we see. need power, BJ! I see it's the first how it is. Episode of the session. Alright, recap time. I never write a recap. I don't even think about it before I start speaking. Previously on Dark Tides. Ernest showed up. Alistair gave him a ride. They hit a deer. They met someone in the woods. Oh, we're doing the full thing. (laughs) They kneecapped a man in a parking lot. Previously on the entire show. Some other stuff happened and then they went to a drag race. Yeah. Uh, Previously on Dark Tides, Ernest and Alistair got involved in uh, teenage gangs and romance and -hmm. business. Mm-hmm. And also called the cops on them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Lots of stuff happened. None of it's particularly plot relevant anymore. So now we're here. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that barely canon arc. <laughs> it's canon. It's, it's can- just not it's important. Canon. Yeah, we had a lot of questions uh, on Discord about where any of that came from. All right. And jumping back in. Mr. Pop. <laughs> It 
It is early morning in the Hook Bar Archipelago, a beautiful summer's morning. It's about 10 o'clock and Alistair Stern is still in bed. He is, in fact, still asleep. Yeah, he's all snug in his Transformers-themed uh, pyjamas. I don't know. Uh, what is Alistair dreaming about? Alistair's having a dream where he's walking down the main street of Port Staples, trying to carry a windshield, a rear window for a car. <laughs> and everybody that he passes has just got this silent look about them with their hand up and they're just trying to get in the way, but they're not saying anything. They're just like trying to gesture and make him understand what they're talking about. They're like, and no matter where he goes, he cannot get past these people. They just, they just keep coming from everywhere and they keep talking to him about things that he doesn't understand. All right, as um, Alistair is having this this strange dream, the people kind of crowd in closer and closer, and then they start rising up, like a like a mound of them growing on top of each other until they're enclosing him, and the light seems to, to be fading away as he is encapsulated by townspeople talking at him. Alistair's worst nightmare. Alistair begins to notice that in this dim light, things are changing, just sort of fading into shadows and then into darkness. Uh, Alistair, you become aware of a light now. Uh, it's distorted, hazy green light above you and darkness below. You can feel a heavy weight uh, on your chest and on your back and your shoulders. Uh, something very large is moving past you in this gloom. And then you fade back into blackness once more. Then gently the darkness is broken, this time by the gentle flash of a red light. You're in a corridor, it's cramped and metallic, there's ducting overhead. Uh, above you the red light flashes silently. You can see shapes down this corridor, humans perhaps, but perfectly still like statues. Then you feel a prickling, a chill on the back of your neck, and a familiar smell, but you can't place it. Behind you, you hear the shuffle of feathers. As you make the turn around, you kick something. There's a resounding clang in the silence. Those figures down the end of the hall begin to turn. And then they start moving faster and faster and faster through the darkness. Then you wake. <gasps> Alistair sits up in bed and he's kind of sweating and he's like, oh, just woken up suddenly trying to catch his breath and blinks as the sun, very bright and high in the sky, comes in. All right, can you roll a d12 for me? I got a one. <laughs> All right. No, 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 that's fine. Um, Starting the can game you, early. Uh, take a note of that for me. Tell me that Stop. you, take a note that you rolled a one that morning. Will do. It is mid-morning, really. Uh, what is Ernest doing this morning? Ernest is walking up the main street of Port Staples. Bright and early, bright and early, uh, he's, you know, he's mincing along, uh, i.e. that scene in Jimmy Neutron when he's walking along with his sunglasses. He has a peculiar shaped, it looks like a tool, like a shovel type of thing that is wrapped up in 
blanket so he doesn't have to touch it. And he's holding that at like arm's length as he walks up the street while he has is jamming a copy of 1955's Invasion of the Body Snatchers into his pocket, which he hates and cannot like he he doesn't enjoy reading it, but he is counting it as research. And he walks into the local antique store and calls out, uh, I brought I brought back your uh uh, I, brought, I brought back your thing. All right, you stand in the musty, claustrophobic atmosphere of Mantefuel's Antiques and Oddities. There is a big stuffed bear looming over you from the right. There's some bizarre three-legged cabinet on your left with like a crystal <laughs> ball on it and lots of dolls. Down the center of the shop, you can see this tiny, crooked, winding walkway between all of the junk to the counter at the very back. And in this little sliver of uh, clear runway, you can see the owner, Dagon Mantefuel, and he is just standing, fingers intertwined, folded in front of his chest, staring at you. Hello, Dagon, nice to see you. And he like quickly speed walks up to the counter and puts down the the shovely thing. And as the fabric disconnects from the, his fingers, the distant screaming he can hear echoing in his ears finally disconnects, which is way less than when you touch it like physically, but it's stopped now. He's just like, okay, okay. <laughs> um, you should probably talk to the police about the break-in. Uh, that's not that's, that's not me. Uh, Gina might get a bit upset if she finds out I'm, I'm doing. Is it po police calls? Oh no, how are you? Uh, Dagon is, he is looking in your direction, but you can see behind his reflective lensed glasses, there is just a turning wheel of kaleidoscope light that seems to be reflected from somewhere else in the shop, somewhere there is a light turning. And he just turns his head to you and says, Ah, uh, thank you very much. Wonderful job, yes, wonderful. I'll take this, and he scoops it off and puts it like directly underneath the counter and just stays perfectly still and looks at you. Yes. What else can I help you with? Uh, uh, well, um, mm, you should, you know, file a police report about the break-in. Uh, oh, I already have. Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, well, uh, that's, that's, that's everything. Uh, do you need anything before I head out? Yes, actually. Yes. He, again, still looking directly at you, reaches underneath the table and brings out a tea tray. Uh, and on it are a number of different objects, one of which is a cracked teacup. Uh, it looks to be very old, very sort of turn-of-the-century stately uh, chinaware that has been chipped. Next to it, there is a child's rattle, like a uh, metal-worked rattle with a wooden handle there's also an ivory hairbrush and at the end some uh weird looking rubik's cube square thingy made out of metal ernest points at the hairbrush and says that's a bit barbaric he says a relic of a bygone era well yes cannot be unmade cannot be unmade that, that is very true um what so what is this a gift for your services. He kind of like spins his finger around. It's like, you want me to, do you want me to pick one or? Whichever you choose. Oh. Uh, Ernest uh, picks up this, the weird kind of like 
cube one and like tosses it in his hand a little bit. It's like just like a old Rubik's cube. Uh something of that nature, I believe. <laughs> and it just kind of turns it over. It's like well, I'm not very good at puzzle stuff. Alistair is there. I'll ask Alistair. Yes, as you wish. Uh, well, thank thank you. He R- returns nice. the tray underneath uh, the counter. Says, "Wonderful morning." It is. It is. Uh, are you going to open up soon? We are open. Oh, I c- you want me to turn over the sign? No. Okay. <laughs> uh, g- great seeing you. All right. Bye bye. Charming. Yes. <laughs> you back out slowly. His head follows you. He is the most mannequin-esque man you have ever seen. Thank you, Dagon. There is just zero physical communication from this man. (laughs) Ernest walks out into the street as I, oh, okay. He, like, bends over, puts his hands on his knees, like, breathes for a second. (laughs) He's picking up and, like, slaps on his ears a little bit to, like, clear his ears from the the sound that was just, like, assaulting his ears as he was walking up the street. So, uh... Alistair, you stumble downstairs, half-dressed. You're kind of pulling a shirt on, trying to find your shoes. You stumble downstairs. Your dad is uh, sitting at the dining room table. He's having his morning coffee. He's preparing himself for another hectic day of running this empire. Uh, Alistair's wearing one shoe. He's wearing his right shoe, and he's, like, looking around for his left shoe. He's like, hey, hey Dad. Ah, Ali, perfect. Uh, I've yeah, got this have- box of stuff. I really need you to move. I don't really care where you put it. Just get it out of the shed. You don't care where I put it? Uh, no, just take it to the recycling center or something. Um, yep, what- right. Whatever works. Sure. Where, where is it? Uh, just in the shed. In the shed? Which, yeah. Dad, which box of stuff in the shed? There's the a be- lot of boxes of Ali, stuff. Ali, do I have to point out everything? Yes, because if I take the wrong one, you're going to get mad, and I don't want to take the wrong one. The one of random metal junk. Which one? I d- use your initiative, son. Do What, do I take all of them? Yes, I don't... Just just get it done. Great, okay. Sure, cleaning the shed out. Look, have you seen my shoe? I can't find it. Uh, did you check the fridge? <laughs> <laughs> he just looks at his dad and is like... Look, got- Ali, you put stuff in some weird places. Oh, that's nice. Also, I think we need to talk about some of your hygiene habits when it comes to this sort of stuff. Look, I, when you were a teenager, we just sort of... I just sort of, you know, let these things slide. What are you saying? uh, Don't leave your shoes in the fridge, son. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) I've never left my shoes in the fridge. Well, I was trying to make myself a cappuccino this morning and I'm looking for the milk and I'm going, oh, there's a shoe. Oh, there's his keys. I'm pretty sure that apple's been half eaten and I don't think it's you because you don't eat fruit. The keys are in the shoe (laughs) with the apple. (laughs) Alistair looks very pained at his dad. Walks over to the fridge, opens it, takes out his shoe, <laughs> takes out his keys, takes out the bag of apples that he'd put in there, which he then remembers is why he put his shoe and his keys in there so that he wouldn't forget to pick up the apples. And he's <laughs> trying to, trying to like, save face and look cool as he's putting his shoe on. He's like, oh, Dad, um, I had a question I was going to ask you. Yeah. Um, that lady that came the same day Ernest did... Uh, Who's do- Ernest? Dr... <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Okay. I shouldn't I shouldn't be surprised. He's reading a Park newspaper. He's eating a biscuit. Um yeah. Yeah. Uh oh uh, uh, uh it was a, a cap boy. Y- yes. Yeah, that one. Yep. Yeah. I, I know Bomber Cap him. boy. 
There was a lady that what? came. She was a doctor. Doctor P something. I don't quite remember her name. Was it? Sorry, uh, Ali. What are you? What are you getting at? Doctor Pike, Dad. Where is she? Oh no, no. Look, uh, Doctor Pike and I are strictly business, Ali. There's nothing to worry about there. I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I didn't say that, Dad. That's not what I was implying. I was just wondering. I. Well, look. Since you bring it up, son, I have been thinking. I'm thinking maybe. All right, it's forget time it, and for I walk out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to know, Dad. It's weird. <laughs> there is nothing better in this show ever than their interaction. There is nothing better than the she's dead to me. <laughs> Alistair walks out, takes takes the apples. He takes as many of the boxes of metal things as he can fit in his car. All right. Roll for me. Absolutely. As you were getting things into your car. Two. <laughs> Everything's fine. Great. Is Norbert going to be in one of those boxes? <laughs> Do I need to keep no. track of that one as well? No, that's okay. All right. As you as you're like getting into the car and you're beginning to like reverse down the driveway, your dad comes to the back door where the carport is, and he calls out after you. Oh yeah. By by the way, I should have said uh, thank you. Hiring a gardener was a really great idea, and I appreciate that is good initiative. It, it makes up for the shoe thing, and he. Turns around and goes back inside. Wait, Dad, wait, wait. As you are reversing down the driveway, you look out of your driver's side window. Uh, they're clipping the hedge, wearing like a, a Boilermakers one suit that's green with some gardening company's logo on it, wearing a cap pulled low. You can see the mutton chops and the staring eyes of McAllister. And as you continue to slowly reverse past him, he puts a finger to his lips and just stares at you. He's going to wave at Marvin the Butcher, and he's going to run across the road, remembering uh, his one of his other to-do lists of the day. He's going to run into the patisserie shop and ask for some donuts, chocolate glazed donuts for Alistair. Uh, all right, you walk into this patisserie. There is a little bit of standing room, and then a um, a countertop with glass cases with different cakes and things inside it. There is a massive man standing behind it. He is head and shoulders taller than you with uh, this lion's mane of red hair in a hairnet and a massive beard that is not in any kind of hairnet. <laughs> Hello, Paddy. Alistair's usual, please. Ah, owners. Yeah, Ali's. Ali's. I uh, got that here somewhere. Wonderful. And could I get a cinnamon roll for me, please? Yep, yep, cinnamon... Ooh, you want a cinnamon twist or a cinnamon scroll? Mm. Twist, please. Twists are good, yep. Yeah. (laughs) He he very slowly, everything this man does seems to be at about quarter speed to normal. (laughs) He's reaching for the cinnamon twists that are in uh, one of the other little cases. Picks it up with two fingers. Yeah, it is like, yeah, he basically pinces it out of the display case. He ties it up in a little bag, knots it. He uh, writes Alistair on the donuts and Ernest on your twist, and he uh, hands them to you. Uh, that'll be six fifty. Ernest then skips, uh, skips. You know, he's he's hopping, he's skipping, he's, he's hopping, loving he's his skipping, life. He's loving life. It's a sunny morning. Uh, he painted the <laughs> cabins today. He did like a varnish on them, uh, uh, restained them, and he feels like he did a pretty good job. And so he's making his way up to the local library. As you walk past one of the like side side street alleyways that leads to like the back of 
a shop. You just hear a crash and Alistair like calling out like, ah, dropped it. <laughs> Ernest like reverses his step without turning around, looks down and says, Alistair, stop being edgy. Come on, we got to go to the library. You hear another clatter and then Alistair like kind of half walks, half stumbles into view, holding like a massive cardboard box of just random bits of metal <laughs> like there's a lampshade in there there's like half of a car fender there's just like random stuff and he like he can't really see you over the top of the box he kind of walks he's like morning and it's like points to the library he's like i thought you said you were getting an early start yeah well that's what i thought and then i kind of slept in and then dad needed me to move this stuff anyway and i kind of like look around and then see like a skip bin and just open it up and dump everything in the box in the skip bin, close it, and then walk up to you. All right, you two make your way to the town library. You walk in. This is a big, quite imposing building for a small town. Someone spent a lot of money getting this library set up. It's got sandstone on the outside on the first floor and then timber on the second story. You go up a set of, um, of sandstone steps with railings up and through double doors. It's a very, quite a grand old building. Past the front desk with the librarian, Mrs. Tibbs. She is absolutely stereotyped. Gray hair pulled up into a bun, reading glasses with a chain. Uh, you do notice, however, that she is smoking uh, and chain smoking at that. There is a, a overflowing ashtray. And you can see above her, directly behind her, uh, is a sign that says no smoking in the library. And a smoke alarm. And a smoke alarm, which is... With a large dent in it. Which is visibly being pulled open and the battery's taken out. (laughs) Uh, She does not acknowledge your existence as you walk in. It Um, also says no food. And it's like, hi, like just strolls past, waves. As you begin to go past, uh, out of nowhere, a hand flashes and a metre-long wooden ruler flashes out and slaps the door handle just as you're about to reach for it. She looks up and you can see one eye is like completely cataract. You, she, like she's blind in one eye. She looks at you and goes, taps the bag of donuts. Alistair taps the ashtray and points to the no smoking sign, smiles and walks in the door. Ernest walks to the desk and opens it up. He's like, would you like one? <laughs> she just reaches in like long almost claw-like fingers and takes one <laughs> and just starts chewing. This is very grateful she didn't take his cinnamon swell legs. <laughs> yeah. All right, you head on in. Ernest walks up close behind Alice and says, did you bring my apples? Oh. My refrigerator broke. Yeah, I did. They may have been in that box I was carrying. <laughs> um we may have to go back for those. I'm sorry. I, I didn't forget them. I thought I'd forget them. It's all right. I put my shoe in the fridge. <laughs> anyway, um, the donuts and walks further into the room. So have you done any prep research or am I just here to like throw books at you? Um, well, I don't. I need to look at them. I think there's some. Um, swallow the donut. And I go, well, the only thing I didn't get to the other day was looking at the microfilm records they had. So I think we start there. What's microfilm? Um, I understand. So you head down uh, dark stairway. It's very cramped. Uh, into the basement, there's a few different rooms labelled. Uh, the lights in here are the buzz. You can hear and feel that buzz in your teeth. 
it's that kind of old lighting, uh, strip lighting on the ceiling, and you find the uh, large cabinets that store the microfilm collection. All right, so I'm going to try and get the machine working, um, which could take me a minute. Do you want to have a look through for any records during the 50s? The 50s is what we're looking for. <laughs> that is a large gap of time. Is yes. there anything more specific than a Military decade? records in the 50s. If you can. I don't know. I haven't looked at them yet, oh, so I don't know oh, what you'll have find. Have a look. All right. I'm going to see if I can get this thing work. Didn't work for me last time, but it's all right. And I hold up my... I like open my pocket and I have like a mini soldering kit. <laughs> it's like, it's all right. We'll see what we can do. And I walk over thumbs up as he walks away. All, all right. right. Do I need to roll anything for finding Yeah, you just give me a straight roll, a d12 roll. Uh, Alice, you can do the same, but with advantage because this isn't your skill set of researching and of tinkering. Okay. I got a 10. 10? Great. Uh, nine. Um, all right. So you're looking for microfilm or you're just looking for any documents? Any documents. All right, I guess um, we're in the microfilm area, though. Yeah, you you find uh, documents from the 1950s. You kind of know that it's probably late 50s-ish from what uh, Alistair said. You scan through, you find um, three or four different films that seem to be military related to um, the naval base just outside of uh, Port Staples. You don't find a whole lot. You find a handful of things. Alistair, you get the machine running. Uh, you do actually have to take half of it apart, fix some of the wiring, and put it back together. It is a bit cannibalized now, but it's running. I'm going to call it. I was like, I, I think I got it working. So just remember anything you find that has to do with shipping or submarines, especially submarines, just anything around there. Um, but I've got this running. So have you found any microfilm? Because I'll, I'll give those a try if you want to look through the documents. All right, underneath all of the stuff that you found, you find at the very bottom of one of these shelves is a shoebox that is just labeled MISC and then Port Staples Navy. And as you go through this, uh, you find the most bizarre collection of absolute nonsense. You discover that in the 1800s, Port Staples had its own navy that consisted of four boats, all of which were wooden and sail-powered. You find stuff about uh, a guy that decided that he wanted to set up landmines, sorry, they wanted to set up sea mines all over the place to protect <laughs> from, as he said, the green incursion. Nobody knows what that means. <laughs> the moss! The moss! <laughs> You find that there was a self-proclaimed admiral of the archipelago who was a former lighthouse keeper turned political activist. You find a heap of bizarre nonsense. Uh, at the very end, it's kind of categorized old at the top, new at the bottom. You find a couple of records from the late 50s to do with American and Australian funded research projects that took place in Hookpah in the Staples Navy base. Ernest just picks up the the shoebox and takes it over to Alistair and gives it to him. Oh, okay, here we go. This is good. I look through and I find that last one. I'm like, okay, okay, well, let's give this a try. So I, I take it out and I slot it into the machine, drop it, pick it up, slot it into the machine again, try and 
whack it a couple of times and eventually it turns on and yep. I start looking through the microphone. Essentially, amongst other fluff about the building of the Navy base, concerns over to whether this would make Hookbar a target from the Russians or the Americans, or for some reason they were very worried about New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> no idea why. You find a lot of the this moss! sort of- <laughs> The moss! The moss is sheep! <laughs> The mosses travel on sheep that swim. <laughs> that is an actual quote from one man. Eventually you find three newspaper articles that are actually relevant to what you're looking for. The first is an announcement from a American newspaper that a team of scientists and military personnel were going to be stationed in Hookbar working on a new submarine prototype. Uh, you can see that there is a couple of names are listed. You see the name uh, Captain John C. Cavendish as being the naval officer in charge. Uh, you see a bunch of other names as well. The next you see is actually a photo, not a article. It is black and white. It is grainy as all hell. But you can see a group of people standing around. Some are obviously uh, scientists wearing lab coats. Others are men in suits. And there's a few in uh, Navy officers' uniforms. And underneath, you can again see a list of names. Some of them are really hard to make out. But you do make out, again, Captain John C. Cavendish. You also make out Executive Officer Dana Hunt and Dr. Judah Vaughan. The final piece that you find is a news clipping from the Hookbar Gazette, which uh, does not exist anymore. And you, uh, <laughs> and what you see is there is a photo of the chained and locked Navy base gates, and the headline reads, uh, experimental program shut down due to lack of funding. And scanning uh, the next couple of lines down, you find that essentially... It was believed that the program was shut down by the Americans for a lack of government funding put into the experimental, the new submarine that they were working on. And underneath, it seems to be that this entire project was scrapped before it actually got off the ground. Ernest reads this and looks at Alistair and is like, so there isn't a submarine? Well, unless there either wasn't a submarine that these people were aware of or there was a submarine and they wanted to cover it up. I don't know. Uh, or maybe it's just the name of a project, but then we did the the radio message we heard made it I guess seem like there was there was something. Yeah. Um did you did you do that research for me into the first few landings onto Yes, the I did. Yes. And um Alistair kind of pats his pockets and stuff and produces a folded up piece of paper that's just been printed off with a bunch of information and he hands it to you and you go, I collated most of it down for you just in here. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Um, all right, well, what do we do from here then? I want to ask Tibbs about these names just in case there's any other documents. Yep. Particularly with this John Cavendish just because he seems to pop up a bit. And then I suppose we could take a visit to the military base. I mean, it's not, you know, anyone can go in there. It's not guarded or anything anymore yeah. it's abandoned okay that's let's give that a go all right that's something um well there's one or two more things i want to just have a look at down here do you want to talk to miss tibbs about this john cavendish and just see if she knows of any other articles we can find because any more information on him might be good otherwise you could look at the other two the doctor and the executive officer 
Ernest scratches his chin, picks up the last donut from Alistair's bag, from Alistair's pack, and says, All right, I'll be an hour, and walks upstairs. <laughs> Good luck. Alistair closes down the microfilm machine and, you know, fixes everything up, puts the panels back on and turns the lights off and, you know, tidies everything up again and puts all the stuff they used away. Um, And then he walks to the other side of the basement. There's another cabinet similar to the, similar to the one on the other corner, but with much more modern articles. And he starts looking through and he starts looking through the sections for the mid two thousands news, newspaper articles and general documentation from that era. That's an eight. All right. You find um, very little. You find two newspaper articles on what you are looking for, if I have you right. You find one uh, which has the the headline, Children Missing in Scout Camp Disaster. And you see uh, a photo of about 50 kids in like a troop photo. It's all, this is a photocopy of... A headline so it's in black and white the photo is pretty poor quality and you can scanning the article you can basically see that in about 2007 there was a cub scout uh, jamboree being held in a mountain area and something went very wrong at this point the point that the article was written it's unknown what the cause was but that the camp was cut short after numerous kids went missing many failed to turn up at that point uh, they had not actually found any of the kids yet just that they had not arrived at their destination and that they had found uh, traces of missing kids in the second one you see two photos Uh, in the first of these two photos you see two little boys wrapped in mylar blankets Uh, they are being tended to by ambulance services and Perhaps pushing it, perhaps it's your imagination, maybe not. One of them does look familiar. Uh, And the headline reads, only two survivors found. Underneath this article basically details that a Cub Scout troop was uh, led on a hike to a camping location. And it's believed that at least two of the Scout leaders killed the children. Uh, there are photos underneath of the scout leaders. They all are very poorly taken photos. It's hard to make out details. Um, and the article is very sensationally written. It essentially paints this as a pre-planned massacre uh, and says that there are only two known survivors and numerous missing that searching is still going on in this mountain region. As you are scanning uh, this article and you're going through the names, something clicks in your mind. Something about maybe not the little boy, although maybe, but then looking through the faces of the leaders, you see one that is uh, definitely younger, probably only a teenager, but it looks a damn lot like Ernest. Alistair takes out a pen and he circles Edgar Marsh and he cuts out with his pocket knife, he cuts out the list of names and also the two photos and he folds them and puts them into a pocket of okay. his of his jeans and um and he places the article back where he found it leaves everything as it was then has another scan round to room just to make sure that he didn't forget anything or forget to turn the power off or whatever and then he heads up the stairs back to meet up with Ernest
What is Ernest doing when he arrives? Go roll for smooth talking. It's an 11. All right. What are you saying? Yeah, I mean, the 50s was just a wonderful year. It was just a wonderful time, just of innovation and all that type of business. So um, these guys, do you know anything about anyone here? Uh, she's looking at the the articles that you're you're showing her, and she's going, "No, that one looks a lot like my second husband." Okay. You look a lot like my fourth. Okay. At this point, Alistair walks up the stairs and goes, "Ah, yes, fourth of many, Mrs. Tibbs. Isn't that right?" So anyway, and he leans on a thing. <laughs> Uh, Alistair leans on the counter and goes, So anyway, John Cavendish, do you know anything? Let me think. Oh, by the way, I had a message for you. I complete. I was supposed to tell you when I came in. Um, uh, something my dad wanted to... Something about... Oh, what was it? Regulations? No, that wasn't it. Um, she stiffens. No, I remember. I remember. I remember. Nicotine tax. That's right. He's fine. Sorry. I, I. He told me to relay this. Anyway. Um, yeah, something about the import is too expensive or something. So he just wanted me to warn you. Um, yeah. She's like shaking with fury. She goes... That man knows that I head the pro-smoking organization in this town, and if he thinks I'm going to take this lying down, he is wrong. Alistair leans in and goes, and I know that you might know more about this John Cavendish than you're letting on. <laughs> she, and I smile. Make, make, a, make a persuasion roll. Yeah. <laughs> Two. <laughs> All right. Uh, can I assist? No, 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 no. no. With my 11... <laughs> That was for a different thing. Um, she looks you uh, dead in the eyes and she takes a cigarette from her mouth and she grinds it into your palm onto the back of your hand on the desk and then flicks Ooh. it at you. <laughs> uh, hold on. Alistair screams. <laughs> ah! Ah! <laughs> I was like, you right, Alistair? Okay, well, um, ma'am, that was a very mean thing to do to Alistair there. He um, deserved it. Alistair is, She's lighting another cigarette. Alistair is um, playing up the pain in his hand just a little bit more than Ernest would expect. He's like, ah, oh, and he's like looking around for something cold and he's like... <laughs> She's lighting Man. another cigarette. He's, Suck it up, boy. Anyway, I don't know what happened to John. One day he was here, the next he was supposed to be going off doing whatever it was that he did and then he never came back and then they shut... shut the place down and... Well, life moved on. You certainly did. <laughs> she just, like, gives you the side eye. Goes, How's your hand? Fine. Oh, good. Now you, you only have two. Shush. Now you tell your father from me he is going to be getting a very long letter if I hear anything else about a tax. Oh, I'm sure he will. And I uh, smile at her, bow a little bit, and walk out. Yeah. <laughs> looks at him walking out, looks back at her. I keep the cinnamon swirl and runs out.
So Ernest and Alistair walk out the front door and Alistair just turns and like smiling very broadly and like brandishing his hand with the burn mark. And he's like, see, good cop, bad cop works every time. make your way to the Port Staples Navy base. As mentioned previously, this is up a dirt track, gravel track, uh, outside of town. It's maybe a 15-minute drive. You crest a hill and start to wind down to where there is sort of a natural inlet on which this base is built. It is a small, very bare-bones compound. It's basically one big concrete slab points for boats and vehicles to be put into the water through the inlet. There is a big chain link fence all the way around. There is a couple of buildings, most of them made out of um, brick. There's one that's a very large shed that would probably be used for storing big pieces of equipment or keeping um, you know, vehicles undercover. Uh, Ernest is driving and the car's kind of bumping from side to side. And uh, something Ernest, uh, Alistair would probably be noticing is Ernest turns into a very different person when he drives. He is extremely aggressive as a driver and extremely, like, just intense. And when he gets in, he's forgotten. He's forgotten that that's how he drives. So he's just driving along, like, around these corners and along this track. He's going so fast that, like, the potholes don't exist. Going so fast, and he's driving along, reaches into his pocket and pulls out the cube he got from the antique store and chucks it in the air for Alistair to grab and says, uh, got that from um, Dagon. It's uh, sometimes like old Rubik's Cube. Oh, right. Um, hey, you know, we're not in a rush. <laughs> we're not. Yep. Oh, all right. Um, yep. Sure. Um, so, where, what did D. Does he need it? Is that broken? Is that. That's usually why people give me things. No, it's because they're broken. No, it was an antique. It was one of those. I know it was a gift. It was a gift? Yeah, because, you know. When like for someone else? When people are nice, they give gifts. Oh, yes, well, know. of course, I wouldn't know anything about that. I kind of smile and I'm like turning it over. And like, so, did he tell you what it is? Have you met Dagon? <laughs> Fair point. Um, he doesn't okay. talk much. Alistair's. <laughs> okay, I'm going to make an investigation roll with disadvantage because I'm shaking so much that I can't <laughs> look at it properly. All right. Oh, we got an eight with disadvantage. Mm. An eight with disadvantage. Um, this is... It looks like a Rubik's Cube. It is definitely a cube. that has lots of uh, small sections built into it that each themselves revolve, rotate, move. But it has a lot more... Um, a lot more give to it than a normal one. It kind of spins around on its own without a lot of, like... Touching, you kind of, if you tap it, it'll spin a little bit and different pieces will move around. Okay. From what you can tell, this is just a bizarre paperweight. It's very heavy too. It looks like it's maybe built out of steel, cast iron, even lead maybe. Okay. And it um, it does make a weird little sound as if there might be something in some of the little cubes that make up the one large cube. Ernest <laughs> points as, as he rounds a, a coin and says, Don't lick it, might be lead. <laughs> Well, that's a good point, actually. It is not lead, you don't think. It's probably some kind of iron or steel. 
Right, you round the corner and you proceed down the hill towards the military base. Um, as you pull up outside the locked chain link fence uh, at the gate, you can see that there are you know, signs up saying that it's a military base, it's a navy base, uh, no trespassing, these sort of things. And it is still padlocked. Mm-hmm. Roll for me. Ten. Nine. All right, both of you see that there is a ute parked some ways down the side where someone has basically just cut a hole in the fence. Alistair, you recognise this ute. <laughs> just puts his hands on his hips like, well, I guess that's the way in then. Yeah, um, yeah, sure. All right. He also holds out his hand for the, the Rubik's Cube. Yeah, I pass it back. And I chuck it through the window of the car and lock the car. <laughs> Throw it through the closed window. Ting! <laughs> <laughs> All right, nothing happens. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> what? <laughs> nothing happens. We keep moving. Okay. It's a bomb! <laughs> All right, you you pull up. Do you pull up next to this um this ute? Like behind it, I'd say. All right, yeah, you mm-hmm. pull up behind the ute. The ute is loaded with bits of machinery. You can see there's a couple of broken down, like taken apart engines. Uh, none of them seem to be very like complete. Some of them are boat engines. One of them looks like it's maybe a motorbike. Tied to uh, the back bar of the ute is a dog. It's a big, old-looking Doberman-type dog, and he's barking ferociously at you guys, but he stops when you approach. Alistair walks up and he's like, Hey, buddy. Hey, how you doing? And I give him a pat. Yeah, Alistair, you recognize both this ute and this dog as belonging to your uncle. Uh, as I'm patting the dog, I, like, pat the dog and cut my hands around my my mouth. I'm like, hey, Ma! Ernest is going to try and tame the beast. All right, roll with advantage because animals are part of your skill set. And a 10. All right, with a 10, uh, this dog is barking ferociously at you like it's going to try and kill you. But as soon as you actually are within reach of it, that it's no longer straining at the chain, it just starts backing up a little and as you go out to pat it it like lets its head melt into your hand like a long lost friend hey marvin oh no i'm marvin's the owner this is this is number seven wait the butcher number seven no the butcher what yeah marvin the butcher no different marvin hey marv numbers wait number nine did you say marv seven number seven yeah i said that Marvin! (laughs) All right, you're standing at the chain link fence. About 100 metres away is the big shed of stuff. You hear a resounding clang as something is dropped and just swearing at the top of lungs. Oh, there he is. And I unclip the dog, like, from the chain to walk it, and I walk over towards the shed. Right, the dog dog is pulling you towards the shed. Uh, You get to a door that has been... um, There's obviously, like, a padlock on it that's been smashed open, and the door is wide open. Uh, you walk in, and there's not a lot in here. There's a bunch of crates that are old under dust jackets. There's a couple of boats that have been put into storage. Um, there's not a lot here. Obviously, a lot was either probably taken when the the Navy pulled out or was sold off. Uh, but you can see that there is a man underneath one of these uh, boats at the back. He's trying to pull something out of um, the engine system at the back. Right, you you rush over to where this man is on his back. He's on a um, one of those little trolleys that mechanics use underneath uh, the engine at the back here. As you grab him, he just flinches and he goes, ah, 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 ah. Hey, we're trying to get this out or trying oh, to get it back in again? Jeepers, creepers, ah, Alice. Alistair, is that you? Yeah, Marv. 
he rolls off uh, this little trolley onto the ground. He's a he's a, a big man, your sort of height, but a bit heavier set. He's got a great big bushy beard with just a really unfortunate bald spot on the chin. Like he once had a soul <laughs> patch and it never quite recovered after that went. He kind of has uh, this strange haircut where one side seems to have been cut and the other, not so much. He's got big bushy eyebrows that have a few scars running through them and he looks at you very sternly and says, Alistair Stern, how many times have I told you since the last time I saw you maybe... Three years ago. Three years ago, how many times have I told you you should never spook a man working on an engine? It's very dangerous. The engine falls, like right behind (laughs) him. (laughs) Right behind him, the engine falls to the ground and goes, ah, jeepers, creepers. Point taken. Point taken, Marl. Yeah, he just shoves you in the chest and goes, what are you doing here, Ali? This place is supposed to be off limits. What are you doing here? I could ask you the same thing, Marv. Yeah, supposed well, to be off I've, limits. Got a, I've got a key, and he pats his hip pocket where you can see a pair of pliers. <laughs> ah, yes, I see. Yeah, what they don't know won't hurt them. Yeah, left number seven on guard, did you? Useless guard dog. Make He's sure too no- friendly. And, uh, 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 he pulls you aside. He goes, Ali, is that man with you? One of them. Oh no, no! This is my this is my friend. Actually, I do have one of those now. Good. Um, this just, he's quite friendly. He won't hurt you. I know you don't like new people, but he's I know. a good one. I just be really careful. The, the feds will take any disguise they think that they can get away with. So oh, um, just man. be careful. You don't he turns have to around tell and me goes, twice. "Hi there, son. How you doing? Uh, I'm Marvin." This Hello, is Marvin. Hello, Marv. Hello, Marv. Marvin Guerrero. Very nice to meet you, son. Hello, Marvin Guerrero. Uh, you don't need to use the the first the the. Call me Marv, and he looks down at the dog and goes, "You are a useless guard dog. You are too friendly. I have been saying this for years. Seven. When are you gonna learn? You, you're getting past your prime. He's just having a, a monologue with the dog now. As he's talking to the dog, the dog starts like barking at him like it's a game. And he's going, no, look, we've talked about this. Remember, we sat down and we talked about this. We had a talk, didn't we, about how you shouldn't yell at me when I'm trying to talk to you. Number seven, sit, sit. Uh, Roll for me with advantage again, because it's animals. And a 12. A 12. A natural, okay. The dog uh, sits immediately and then looks at you. And it's just like tail wagging, completely quiet. And Marv's looking at his guys. What in the bloody hell is that? He's never done that for me. <laughs> and Alistair, who is this? I pat him on the shoulder and I go, well, it's a step up from number six, isn't it? <laughs> He's like, oh, oh number six. <laughs> he, he puts a hand over his heart and he looks at the ceiling and says, oh, number six broke my heart. And your leg, you remember uh, that? If I had ever had a that's child. That's why you had to put six down, remember? No, I... Mm. That scar? What scar? He looks that at his one leg. Was, that was six. Ah! Remember? <laughs> she pushed you off a cliff. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, so anyway, what, why why are you here? Because, like, we're here for stuff, but... Uh, uh, what you doing, I, I was looking for... Pilfering engines uh, again, aren't you? I was looking for a few things, Ali. Pilfering is an unkind That's word. That's my man. Uh, when the government takes as much as they do, and by the way, tax is... Fraud. It's completely illegal. You heard of the new nicotine tax they're bringing in? 
Oh, it's a good thing I don't smoke nicotine. Yeah, figures. Uh, so anyway, uh, anyway, you can give me a hand, and he starts trying to drag the entire engine that fell out. <laughs> um, not a whole lot of help. Ernest I'm ties. too precious about my docks. Yeah. Ernest ties number seven to like a bench and goes down. Helps. All right. He's a bit concerned about the fact that they're stealing this, but. A two. Right, you are both completely useless. This this <laughs> 50-year-old man is basically doing all of the work himself, and you guys are kind of helping, but you're more just, like, directing him because he's not looking behind him. supporting him more than the engine. Right, you get to the door, and the engine is not going to fit through the door. He's like, ah, I, I got a solution for this. And he goes and finds a sledgehammer, <laughs> and he starts whacking at the door frame until he... It's like a, a, um, a corrugated iron... Shed and he t- he just bends the metal until it's enough for the engine to fit through, and he keeps dragging. Just don't worry, I can scuff that out; it'll be fine. Right, what are you guys here for? Well, we're actually uh, we're actually doing a bit of a dig of ourselves, uh, looking for information. Actually, we're looking for a submarine. He he, he kind of like flinches again. And he starts looking around, like uh, when you say a submarine under the water. Preferably the submarine. That is what a submarine is, It Allie. was built by the government. Oh, the American I, government. The American government. <laughs> Only slightly worse than the Australian government. You want to give us a hand? Don't get me started Track on the- Track down the secrets? Don't get me started uh. on the Kiwis. <laughs> all right. You want to give us a hand, Marv? Could be fun. Government secrets and all that? Look, look, uh. I think uh, before we get into that- uh, we need to talk in my my zone of truth. Uh, you boys, come back, to, come back to the house. I'll, I'll give you some lunch. Uh, you follow Marvin's ute as he just starts driving, like, going bush. He's not following roads at all. He's just driving between trees and, like, tracks that you don't really... Can't really tell if that's there, if he's just forward driving. So it's a good thing you came in Ernest's Jeep. You know, Ernest... The only reason I don't see this man is because I cannot, for the life of me, find his house. <laughs> I, I try to visit him. I, I can't find it. Ernest is riding, like, half a foot behind Marv for whatever reason and, like, revving his engine, <laughs> trying to get him to go quicker. Okay. Trust me, you don't, you, don't want him, you don't want to see his road rage phase, all right? You just pull back a what, little bit, all what right? Road, what road well, I'm, just, I'm just following him. No, just just pull. Trust me. Trust I'm just, me. Just pull back a little bit. I, I Ernest, am. Please, I am. Please pull I'm, back. Please. I'm, I'm behind Ernest, you. Please. What are you talking about? I don't stand. Ernest, he doesn't rope anything on, okay? <laughs> <laughs> the entire engine is just swaying on top of the back of what is already like four or five other bits of machinery. He, the man has not heard of ropes, all right? Just please give him a bit more space. Yeah, ropes were invented by the uh, Russians to... <laughs> Gosh, I can, I can hear him yelling from inside his car about the Russians. Yeah, you really can't trust modern ropes, no, unless it's made out of pure hemp that you grew yourself. Those things are not trustworthy. They are bugged. Ernest is winding up his own window. <laughs> right, it's about lunchtime when you reach uh, Marv's house. You have no idea how you got past. At some point, you did actually end up on a dirt track, uh, but you don't know where it came out. So you... you uh, wind through really dense trees and you wonder how much of this is intentional that it's just hard to find uh, it's secluded down this little dirt track you pass over a rotting log bridge uh, over a little stream you ignore numerous uh, hand-painted signs that says warning private property uh, guard dogs and 
trespassers will be shot <laughs> until you come to what is essentially just a junkyard with a house in the middle of it. In the middle of the trees, there is um, a, a really big iron shed that is rusting to pieces. You can see there are dead boats and cars in the front yard. A, a nice little picket fence. Everything is inside the picket fence, but beyond that, it is a chaos of mechanical pieces, bits of furniture, uh, and this, this squat little house. The house is very old. Uh, this is all timber. This is a dirt floor house. He has an old wood cook cooker. He's building it up. He's going to fry you some fish that he's got in the freezer. You look around. This room is is cramped. It smells like uh, dog and wood smoke and rotting oil. Um, and you can see you can see lots of photos. There is Marv as a young man uh, on a ship. There's Marv in an army uniform. There's Marv with a woman that you you very vaguely remember as being Aunt Carol. Um, you do not really remember what happened to Aunt Carol. Oh no! <laughs> this place, uh, he Marv is without a doubt a hoarder. There is just stuff everywhere. There are better homes and gardens magazines from forty years ago. He dishes you up some lunch and he shushes you anytime you go to talk about anything related to what you were doing. Is uh, boys, we gotta we gotta wait until uh, the zone of truth, the, the cone of silence. My, I'll I'll show I'll show you, and he uh, he ushers you to the back room, and it is a very cramped office room. He you guys walk in. He finds a two legged stool for Alistair. You have to basically keep the thing balanced, and a stack of newspapers for Ernest. He shuts the door and it's only when he shuts the door with a resounding clang that you realize that the entirety of this room is metal and he he um including the floor he he sits down on a moth-eaten old office chair and he says now this is the zone of truth i couldn't get enough lead to do the whole house yet but i am working on it but for now we are safe from any bug that the government can put on us or anyone else for that matter i was going to just look to us and be like don't lick the walls. <laughs> You're like, right? What do you have to tell me? We're looking for a submarine. Yes, I know the submarine. The split fin. Yeah, that's 90, the one. There's yeah. only one uh, submarine that is worth. Red so, October, I don't know so much about. That's okay. We're not interested in Red October. Split well, fin. that's where you should be wrong. Red October is really in a, a, I know, a One thing at a time, Marv. One thing at a time, Marv. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry mate. So... It's real. The split fin is real. Yeah, of course it's real. Okay. How did you find out about it? I think I heard it from a mate. Um, way back when your mum and I were were little ones. No, um, we weren't alive then. Oh, when was I born? <laughs> it's all right, Moi. Moi. Sorry, right, Matt. Uh, it's it's like anyway, it does it doesn't matter. Look, I've got it. I've got it here somewhere. And he starts going through just stacks of paper, and there seems to be some system in his mind. And he is searching and searching and searching. And eventually, he finds a single sheet of yellow, uh, like legal pad paper. And he goes, "This is everything I know." And he slides it across the table to you. Uh, as you scan it, it says "split fin submarine?" Question <laughs> mark. <laughs> he goes, uh, "Naval base is shady!" Exclamation point. 
government conspiracy exclamation point definitely built exclamation point disappeared question mark smiley face <laughs> smiley face russians question mark and then there's just like a shopping list underneath that and then at the bottom there's a concluding note pretty sure it's real <laughs> i was like mm, mm-hmm well now, let's start right <laughs> Now, look, I have been in that uh, that naval base uh, many a time. I found a lot of things. There's not a lot there anymore. Most of it's in my shed. Now, main thing, they definitely built the sucker because they built a launching ramp for it, and you don't build that until after you built the thing because in case your funding goes. That's what they said happened, but they always lie. If it was in the newspaper, that means it was not true. Right. I was thinking yes. the same thing. Nixon lied. <laughs> Not uh, close enough. Yeah. Okay. So, so they built it, Ali, a nuclear right. sub. They built it here. They put it in that ocean, and that's why all the fish are weird. So it was. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I don't. That's eat why them. there's still a mermaid that throws things at my boat. <laughs> Actually, both of you roll for me. This okay. character has just blown Randy out of the water. Three! Can I get anything higher than a four today, please? Right. Uh, Alistair, Ernest manages to pass off his laughing as a cough. Alistair, you just cannot help laughing at your uncle. Okay. Like, I've seen it. She's not wearing anything. There should be a law against that, except those things aren't really real. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Alistair's been looking through his phone and the notes that he's been making, and he comes across the coordinates that were sent through on the radio message, which were, oh, I don't need to say them, but I have them. Dear listener, I have them noted down that I wrote down as Aubrey was talking. <laughs> uh-huh. And I, I finally looked through and I go, Marv. Yeah, you, uh, the phone's not going to work in here, uh, Ali. This is uh, a no, zone no, it's, of truth. It's in my notes. It's in my notes. Uh, hold on. He uh, he starts fishing around and he finds some, some glasses. Oh, here we go. And he, he holds it at arm's length <laughs> with the glasses. He's looking over the rim of the glasses while he's <laughs> holding it at arm's length. He goes, those are some numbers. Coordinates, Marv. Oh, there too, yeah. Hold on. Where he, um, he starts going through his papers and he, he shoves a whole stack of things onto the floor and he's like, finds a map. Of the archipelago, he, he cleans it off. You can see it's covered in markings of, like, things he's buried somewhere or something that he's, like, supposed to pick up from someone. Another shopping list is written on it. And he goes, um, is that a two or a, is that a seven or is that a one? Uh, that's a that's a zero, Marv. <laughs> oh, oh, damn me. It's all right. All right. I'll read them out to you. Yeah, okay. you, you do that. Uh, teamwork. We cut forward about five minutes. <laughs> Like, Ernest, is right. si- Ernest is sitting outside the lead room, <laughs> patting the dog. He's patting the dog and listening like to their echoing voices of seven. No, that's a six. <laughs> what are you talking right. about? The door slams open and there's Marvin. The glasses are on his face, but completely crooked. He's like, "All right, we got it. Wonderful." You can see there's about seven different points marked. <laughs> is that one there, boys? I can get you there this afternoon. Ernest looks at the map and is he like dots his eyes across the different ones, different points he's marked, and then finds the one that's like in the middle of the ocean. That's yeah, the, the one with the, the smiley face. The one next that to he's it. pointing to is that it's that one there. And Ernest scratches his head and says Um Marv. Yes. 
Mr. Marv. Mr. Marv is me. Do you have a boat? <laughs> Do I have a boat? Does he have a boat? Do I have, Does a, have boat? a boat? Does he have a boat? <laughs> yeah, I do. Okay, good. That that makes us a bit more reasonable. Uh, I got one working boat. <laughs> I would love to use that one. Her name is Sheila. I would love to use Sheila. Not She-Ra as in um, that TV show. At least I think it's a TV show. Was that a radio program? Wonderful, Marv. Anyway, it okay. was definitely propaganda. But Marv, Marv. diving equipment. Oh, I've got that too. Is that on Sheila? I'd be or not within the vicinity of Sheila. <laughs> yeah, it's all of that uh, the uh, navy base hoo ha that I picked up. Uh, all right, at some point. Great. Okay, let's do this then. Smash cut. You guys are in the back shed. There is a fairly large fishing boat for a personal fishing boat in this shed. Uh, Marv is polishing the uh, the flowing script that reads Sheila and whispering to the boat. Meanwhile, you guys have gone through piles and piles of junk to find diving gear. Now, Alistair rolled a 10. Alistair, you find a complete set of diving gear. None of it matches. You have flippers. You have a wetsuit. You have air tanks, surprisingly. You have a mask. You got everything you need. Ernest... You find a Hello Kitty themed uh, wetsuit. <laughs> uh, you find very mismatched fins. One is much longer than the other. <laughs> but you do also find all the necessary things. Yours is just way more mismatched. <laughs> is that it? Yep. Okay, nice. That was all it was for. <laughs> Love it. Uh, and he, uh, Marv kind of gets you to assemble and he checks out your gear and he's like, all right. Gonna need some duct tape on that bit there. Uh, that hose is leaking. We'll get you a new one of those. Hey, you boys look fantastic. Good to go. He pulls like a pipe off an engine and uses that. Yeah, he's duct taping one of your air hoses while he's talking. He's like, that'll just fix that right up. Uh, nothing better than duct tape. Invented here in the archipelago. If you can believe it. They keep trying to say Wikipedia says it was invented in some, um, yeah. He's like, all right, here is the plan. We're going to check out those coordinates. It might not be there. I'm pretty sure the Russians have it, and I think it's in the Kremlin. It's worth a try. It is worth, worth a, try. a try. And um, you've got your gear. I'm reckoning about that far out. It's going to be a decent dive. You're going to need the air tanks. But so long as you're really just going down, having a look around, coming back up, you should be fine. These babies are at least three quarters full. I haven't been diving in a while. Precious says that they're good if you can trust the gauges. Now, if there is something down there, and my bet is Russians, although it could be the Americans, they are not better. CIA might be worse. Anyway, you're going to need some protection. I've been cobbling together a few things. <laughs> while he's talking about this, Ernest hands Alistair a little... It looks like a small deodorant canister. Uh, I look at it, and I'm like... She is shark repellent spray. <laughs> <laughs> Gifted to Ernest from his mother. <laughs> like, wow. He like, whispers to her, I tried to tell her I don't work in the ocean. Look, we can test it. <laughs> you can test it. What, what better way to tell her not to send any more than if you tell her it's not working? <laughs> if, I pocket, if I tell her, I pocket the shark work. spray. <laughs> All right, boys, you can't be unprotected down there. Lord knows what you're going to come across. All right. Who wants the spear gun? Hands up. 
Alice puts his hand up. All right, speaker. <laughs> Who wants the crossbow? Alistair throws like the the shark spray over his shoulder so that Ernest can catch it. And he's like, I'll take that. Thank you very much. All right. Cro- crossbow, spear gun. That's good. Tomahawk, anyone? Anyone want a tomahawk? Uh, yeah, sure. Flashbang. Sure. <laughs> Wait, hang on. How do you... Bowie knife. What's a bow knife? Bowie knife. It's just like a massive hunting knife. As in like David Bowie? Uh, sure, yeah. I take the he Bowie knife. He did a knife. lot of drugs, you know that? Uh, I take the bow knife. And I'm I... pretty sure David Bowie was a Nazi at one point. Uh, I feel like David Bowie was everything at one point. Yeah, that he was. What a legend. I take the Bowie knife and I hand the tomahawk to Ernest. Ernest takes the tomahawk and looks at it. All right. Radar <laughs> kit. Rusty. He turns around and he's got like uh, headphones on and like some weird little dish on a handle. Like, Radar kit. Shouldn't, Ernest shouldn't you the be tomahawk. keeping that if you're on the surface? Yeah, that's a good point. So you can, you know, search for the Yeah, the, the other submarines. All right, good idea. Or the one we're looking for as well. Yeah, good idea, Ali. He's climbing onto the boat. <laughs> like, all right, I reckon we can get this done, dusted, and back for tea. Alistair climbs onto the boat and then helps helps Ernest up. He's like, hey, have you, you been on, on, the, on the high seas before? I kind of chuckle. Ernest climbs up onto the boat and says, um... We're still in the middle of the bush. Yeah, I know, but like we're getting there. So right. I was just I just thought I'd ask now before we're actually yeah, uh well, you know, sort of. Alright, boys, hold on. The boat starts sort moving. <laughs> and you can see that he's got like a little tractor that he's using to drag the boat uh, and he's dragging it down into the water of the river. Let's get going. So you say sort of. What do you mean sort of? Oh, uh, well, I never got my badge, but I never went back out after that. All right. And that was just on the river. Okay. I just, I just, because, you know, ocean is a, it's a whole different beast, if you will. Oh, it is. Yeah. It is. As you are motoring along, the the ocean is quite calm, but uh, Uncle Marv is looking off in the distance going, Yeah, I think that's a storm coming that way. It's going to be the 5G towers. You're <laughs> <laughs> shaped like a syringe, gene editing, mantis, medicals, solve rations! Hey, Marv, you know we can do this tomorrow if there's a storm. No, right? no, we're going to do this right now and be back for tea. That way, the mantis men, I guess. The mantis men? <laughs> what? Is tea before or after the storm hits? Oh, but it's far like, off. Ernest over here is not great with the water, look, as I can look, tell. <laughs> it's going to take us about 40 minutes to get that far out. You guys yeah. will dive down, be back in 10. 40 minutes back, this thing won't hit till after dinner. You sure about that, Marv? Boy, I have been on boats right, longer so than fair. you, you know have what, been Marv? alive. You're right. Right, you are you are sailing along. The ocean is smooth. Ernest, you are retching over the side. Alistair, you are. I'm like sitting on the edge, like dangling my feet in the water, like holding on with one hand. 
And that's when Genevieve said, look down there, that's one of those ocean pancake fellas, the, uh, the ones with the tails. And I said, one of those bastards, I'm gonna get him. I'm gonna show him what Steve Irwin really deserved. I went down and I punched that little sucker right in the face. I had to flip him over because the face is on the inside. And um, you do have to be careful of those spines. That was actually mighty dangerous. Now, I will say I was going through a tough time uh, then uh, Genevieve was a bad influence on me. I realize that now. I went back there, uh, I think maybe uh, six years later, to try and uh, make reparations for what I did because I, I realized that's not what Steve would have wanted. And that's when it stung you, right? Yeah, that's how I got this scar. He pulls up, <laughs> he pulls up his shirt and he shows, pulls up his shirt and he shows you a scar, um, and he goes. Uh, uh, Ali, guess what this one is? And he points to one on the opposite side of his ribcage. What's that one, Marv? A gunshot. Mm, I know. Right, the boat slows down. You're in a random piece of ocean. You're about you're maybe an hour out of the actual archipelago. Uh, it's, it's not too far away. And you just seem to be in a random bit of ocean. You can see that there is a storm far off gathering. You do have hours before it hits. Marv goes, all right. Uh, this is actually too deep to weigh anchor, but what we're going to do is we're going to give you one of those diving line doohickeys that they didn't have when I was little, uh, and that means you guys will know where I am. Now, I'm going to chuck that down, and you guys are pretty much good to go. Now, has anyone taught you how to dive before? Um, no one taught me. It's not that hard. All those qualification courses you got to do, I've done complete it rubbish. Look, this thing here tells you how much oxygen you got left. This thing here, ksh, ksh, that's the bit you put in your mouth and you uh, you do the thing with your tongue that makes it go. <laughs> Ernest is looking off into the distance, seeing a mirage of a, a desert island type of thing. It's like, what is this hell? <laughs> uh, Alistair pats him on the shoulder. He's like, hey, hey, buddy, you listening? This is kind of important. Who would ever go to the ocean? <laughs> Ernest. What? Oh, um, Marv's giving you a, a briefing on the... Are you coming down? I don't need Marv's help with this. Yeah, self-sufficient attitude is the best thing you have. That's you why the healthcare the system boat, is rigged. I'm tired of listening to Marv. He's going to start putting on his Hello Kitty swimsuit. <laughs> <laughs> now, <clears throat> Ernest, are you sure you want to go down there? Because, like, it's kind of, you know, it's dark and wet and more the ocean than up here because we're going into the ocean as opposed to being on the ocean. Are you sure that's all right? Because I can go down. Like, I'm happy to go down on my own. It's all good. I've done... I've dived before, so... <coughs> as long as there isn't rocks for me to hit into, I'll be fine. He thinks back to the cave and the, the, the rushing waters of that. Mm -hmm. like that. You sure, man? I will be... Because, all... like, honestly, it'll take me five minutes. You know, a nice cup of tea with Marv or... Oh, I will be all right. <laughs> Okay, all right, now <laughs> listen to what he's saying, all right? This is important. Mm. And I start recapping what he didn't hear. All right, 10 minutes later, you are sitting backwards on the edge of the boat. You tip back into the water. It is surprisingly cold, actually, considering it's summer, but southern currents coming up from South Pole. The water is very cold and very clear at first. As you begin to dive down, you can see for hundreds of metres... Uh, in each direction, and as you get the, the deeper you get, the more that visibility goes.
Now, each of you do actually have a torch set up on your uh, diving apparatus, so it's on your chest to see. As you begin to dive down deeper and deeper, the water above you stays that same shimmering uh, green. It's kind of, and the deeper you go, it becomes murkier and the light generally fades. As you go deeper still, you begin to feel the pressure and the weight on your back and your chest and your shoulders as the pressure of water pummels down on you. Both of you are actually quite unused to this sensation. It's actually a really dumb thing to be doing. <laughs> Alistair's uh, dived, but like not deep. It's just been, you know, around the coast. All you can hear down here is the hiss of air as it feeds into your mouthpiece and the thump, thump, thump of your own heartbeat in your ears. You can see the gentle stream of bubbles left from your mouthpiece behind you. You're making a beeline now for a reef that is below you. You have a rough idea of where you are. It should be directly down and you can see a reef uh, formation of quite jagged rocks down on the ocean floor, but it is murky and dark down there. Now I'd like both of you to roll for me. 6. 6 as well. Alright, um... Blind leading the blind. (laughs) Your visibility begins to darken and darken as this sort of uh, haze begins to kind of form. You can't really see very far off into the distance anymore. And you're relying more and more on your torchlight. Now, Alistair, this is just a moment of deja vu. You feel like you've seen this before. As you continue to dive... You feel that the the murky darkness is pressing a little closer and a little closer. And as you start to be able to see the rock formation below, you realize that this murky darkness is moving. It's not things moving in the dark. The darkness itself seems to be twisting slightly counterclockwise. Um, okay. I reach out and tap Ernest's hand. And it's like flinches a little and looks at you as like points the spear gun. <laughs> Hold up my hands like it's okay. And I like just point forward just into the darkness. To, are you, you sort of stopped your descent to look? Yeah. I'm trying to point out what I've just seen. All right. Uh, Ernest, make another roll for me. Seven. Seven. All right. Um, yeah, you can see this too for sure. Uh, In fact, to you, it does seem like this is not so much darkness moving as the light being cut off from above you. Earth, like, looks at you and shrugs and, like, does, like, hand signals to, like, because I'm fairly sure I have it written down that he knows sign language. So he's going to sign we're deep. Tell a thing. Okay. And keep swimming down. Alice is going to load his crossbow. <laughs> Alright, you keep heading down. Below you in this uh, dark haze of water, you can see a... For a moment, you see a wink of red. Then again. And as you get f- closer and closer, 
you are fairly sure that somewhere in that maze of reef rocks, there is a winking red light. Alistair immediately flashes back to the dream he had that morning of the winking light and just like freezes for a second. It's just like a one of those moments where you connect two things that have happened recently and it's like, oh, that's that's the same thing. It's just like a moment of fear. And then it was just a dream and it passes and he swims towards it. All right, as you get closer, you begin to realize that this strange rock formation is not entirely rock. As you get closer, you begin to distinguish that part of this reef is actually metal. The part of it is these blasted shards of steel embedded into the rock, and they have rusted and moss and lichen have grown all over them. They're basically disguised. And as you get closer to this flashing light, you realize that what you thought maybe was sort of a cave mouth in the rock is actually the torn open back end of a cylinder shape metal, a cylindrical shaped piece of metal. Now this piece of metal is jammed between two large rock formations like teeth and the front end of it is down into a crack in the stone. As you realize that well disguised after 60 odd years at the bottom of the ocean, there is in fact a submarine here. And that's when you become aware of the shifting in the current as you are buffeted a little by something from behind you. As you both turn around to look, that murky, moving darkness you can now see is actually a wall of dark flesh. The width and height of a house, there is just a band of flesh moving past you. And it is curled right the way around you again and again. And it is not until you see the head that you realize that this is in fact a living creature. You can see the gnarled shape of its face. No eyes, just feelers sprouting from the head detecting movement and a hideous maw of small serrated teeth and two large tusks for prying prey out of armored shells. The head is bigger than Uncle Marv's boat. <laughs>